Hey everyone, and welcome back to Caffeine and Cats, a creepy podcast. I'm your co-host, Abby, along with Caitlin and Lou. Today, we wanted to dive right into some creepy Christmas murders. As always, please follow us on social media. You can find us at Caffeine and Cats Pod on Instagram and Caffeine and Cats Podcast on Facebook. Give us a like and leave a review if you enjoy hearing our stories. Caitlin and Lou, are you guys ready for Christmas? I'm getting there. I think everything's wrapped up and just getting ready to get done with work so I can enjoy myself a little bit. How about you, Lou? I'm good. Actually enjoying uh, a bit of a vacations before Christmas and getting my stomach ready for all the food. (laughs) Yeah, nice. I'm ready for some time off as well. Cool. So I'll begin with my story because it's a bit rough and so we don't finish with a sad note. Um, So my story takes place on Christmas Eve 2008 in Covina, California. Some of you may already know which one I mean. Personally, it's the first time I come across it and I can see why, since it's senseless. I will be telling the story of the Covina massacre, also known as Killer Santa. The story begins with Sylvia Ortega and Bruce Jeffrey Pardo. The couple wed in January 2006, but soon grew apart after their marriage when Pardo refused to open a joint account with Sylvia. He also expected her to take care of her own three children with her own finances. I found scattered info on their life before their marriage. We know Sylvia had three kids and she thought Bruce didn't have any children. But it is speculated that also another reason for their divorce is because Bruce actually did have a child and he never mentioned it. Pardo's former girlfriend, Elena Lucano, in a child support case against Pardo said that Pardo and herself were in an off and on again relationship in 2001 and that Pardo was watching their 13 month old son Matthew one Saturday while Lucano was uh, went grocery shopping when she came back a short time after she found Pardo frantically holding the unconscious toddler apparently the child did get away from him for a few minutes and managed to crawl out of a patio door and slip into the pool The couple rushed the child to a nearby hospital where paramedics resuscitated him. Later, the gravely traumatized child was airlifted to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles for special treatment. During the first week in the intensive care unit, Pardon never left his son's side. But a few weeks later, after the child was stabilized, doctors concluded that severe brain damage will confine him to a wheelchair for life. Less than six months later, Pardo and Lucano ended their relationship and Pardo stopped visiting his son. Pardo also neglected to contribute to Matthew's medical costs, which charged up to 340,000 within the first year. She said she never had any problems with Pardo and was able to collect the 100,000 policy to pay off medical bills and set up a special needs to trust needs trust of 240 per month for the rest of Matthew's life. The boy is now nine years old. Once the the settlement was reached in August 2002, Bruce stopped communicating completely and never saw Matthew or Elena again. She said that she maintained occasional contact with Pardo's mother over the years, uh, but she was unaware that Pardo had remarried. So back to Sylvia and Pardo, now on his second divorce. 
In June 2008, divorce court had ordered Bruce Pardo to pay $1,785 a month in, in spousal support. During the divorce proceeding, Bruce had confided, confided to a friend his wife had, was uh, taking him to the cleaners. In July, Pardo was fired for billing false hours and the court suspended the payments due to job hardship. So basically he was divorced and lost his job. Pardo was required to pay Sylvia 10,000 as part of the divorce settlement, according to court documents. Sylvia kept the wedding ring and the family dog. In a, in a court declaration, Pardo complained that Sylvia was living with her parents, not paying rent, and had spent lavishly on a luxury car, gambling trips to Las Vegas, meals at fine restaurants, massages, and golf lessons. Like, whatever, dude, get over it. So, <laughs> really? so maybe something in him snapped, though I think he was just an asshole and that just went, wanted to get rid of his problems once and for all. Now, at approximately 11.30 p.m. on the 7th 24th, 2008, Pardo, dressed as a Santa Claus suit, not on the door of his former in-law's house, occupied with about 25 people, with a gift wrap packaged, containing a homemade flamethrower in one hand and a semi-automatic handgun in the other oh hand. Oh, my gosh. He also had three additional semi-automatic handguns in his possessions. Now... This is the hard part. When the door opened, Pardo fired the handgun at an eight-year-old girl as she ran to greet him, thinking she, he was actually Santa. Oh, my goodness. That Thankful is so sad. Yes. Thankfully, she survived. Uh, she got head on the side of her face. He then indiscriminately uh, fired at fleeing party goers. Police speculated that Pardo may have stood over and pointedly executed some of the victims using the other handguns. After the shootings, Pardo unwrapped the package containing the flame, uh, the homemade flamethrower and used it to spray racing fuel gasoline to set the home ablaze. I'm, I'm afraid that racing fuel gasoline is actually quite strong. Nine people died from either gunfire or flames and three others were wounded. The eight-year-old girl, a 16-year-old girl shot and wounded in the, in the back, and a 20-year-old mm. woman who suffered a broken ankle jumping off uh, out of the second-floor window. Oh, my gosh. One of the survivors called the authorities during the attack uh, after escaping to the neighbor's house. The resulting fire soared approximately 40 to 50 feet and took 80 firefighters and an hour and a half to extinguish. Due to the, wow. in, due to the intensity of the fire, I just identification of the victims had to be done by referring dental and medical records. Um, now, after the attack, Pardo drove approximately 30 miles away from the crime scene to his brother's house. He, now, his brother wasn't home. He had planned to detonate a series of handmade explosives and then make his escape to Canada. But the fire had caused his center suit to melt onto him, causing severe third-degree burns. So instead, he decided to put a bullet in his head. Now, police found 17000 in cash clean wrapped on his leg inside a girdle and his rental car that had been parked one block from his brother's house, which had been rigged by remnants of his suit that will ignite a flame and detonate the car with black powder if removed. So basically, he left a bomb inside the car. Right. Although, 
they recovered from the scene um, four 13 round capacity handguns that each that were each empty and at least 2,000 rounds of ammunition, suggesting that he was going he had been inside the car was being threat treated as a threat. A bomb squad fired and actually made it explode, but nobody was hurt. So his total toll of victims is nine, including his wife, uh, both his both her parents, her brother, uh, her brother. I mean her sister-in-law. Again, I got all this information from Wikipedia and Murderpedia, and um, I'm pretty sure it's quite accurate. But I don't want to cause any troubles to the family or, or you know, be senseless or anything. So this concludes this senseless and sad story that changed this family and their kids forever from the hands of a man with no previous valiance or no real motives. I mean, according to everybody, he was a really nice guy, went to church and had no issues at all. Um, the thing is, to make things work, if that's even uh, worse, sorry, if that's even possible, this story, a man dresses as Santa shoots his ex-wife and family, is not the only one. I found another one that happened on Christmas Day of 2011, when Aziz Yaz, sorry, Yazdan Panna shot and killed six family members and then killed himself. himself. He had appeared at his ex-wife's Christmas party unannounced, dressed as Santa. So now I'm done. And before I was scared only of clowns, uh, now men <laughs> in, Santa, in Santa suits. That is terrifying because you would yeah. never expect yeah. that. No. I'm glad you brought that up because my story is actually about Aziz Yazpanda. So I will dive a little bit further into that. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Can't wait to hear. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> We linked. Yeah. I know. I was like, I was hoping you weren't going to tell too much about it. So I have a little bit more details to go into so we can discuss it further when. Awesome. I, I didn't read story. much into it. So please go ahead. Awesome. Well, for now, Caitlin, why don't you go ahead and then I will tell mine after. All right. So mine does not include any Santas. So that's good. <laughs> um, just a lot of senseless death. So not as good, but we'll get started. So I'm going to be talking about the Christmas killings. And our story begins in the early hours of December 24th, 1992 in Dayton, Ohio. And we start with Laura Taylor, who was 16 at the time, and her boyfriend, Marvelous Keen, 19. And they came up with a plan to rob Joseph Wilkerson, 34, by promising him an orgy. As part of this plan, they recruited Heather Nicole Matthews, age 20, to assist. That the is trio plan. Yes, it, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> the trio went to Wilkerson's home, bound him with electrical cords to his headboard, then proceeded to search for valuables. In their search, they found a .32 caliper Derringer, which Keene then used to shoot Wilkerson in the chest. Taylor followed this up by also shooting him in the head with a .25 caliber gun. Following the execution, the trio stole Wilkerson's car and went on a hunt for more victims, picking up Matthew's boyfriend, Demarcus Maurice Smith, 17, along the way. The group then came up upon Danita Gulette, then 17, while she was talking on a payphone. The high school senior and mother of a two-year-old was a total stranger to them. One account later stated she was shot for her fill of shoes. 
Her body was found outside the telephone booth, shot five times. She'd also been robbed of her coat, shoes, and a backpack containing 50 cents. Before returning to Wilkerson's house to spend the night, which is really disgusting and probably creeped me out more than anything else in the story, the group decided to try to claim another victim. Their new target was Matthew's ex-boyfriend, Jeffrey Wright. Smith shot Wright four times in the leg, but Wright was able to escape to a neighbor's house. He luckily survived. The following day on December 25th, Christmas Day, Taylor lured her ex-boyfriend, Richard Maddox, 19, from his parents' home. While Taylor and Maddox were riding within Maddox's car, Keene, Smith, and Matthews were following close behind. And once Maddox had realized that they were being trailed and started to get suspicious, Taylor pulled out a gun, put it to his right temple, and fired. Taylor then quickly jumped out of the car before it crashed, and they found his body soon afterwards. Then following that, on December 26, the group would claim their fourth victim, Sarah Abraham. She was a 37-year-old mother of three and was working at the shortstop mini market when Taylor entered the store. Smith and Keene soon followed, and Keene proceeded to shoot her twice in the head. A witness in the store was also shot in the hand and the stomach but survived. Abraham was not as lucky, and she died five days later. The group got away with a grand total of $44. So in an attempt to avoid capture, the group was switching plates on multiple stolen vehicles as they went. Also, they began to fear that someone would snitch. The group then turned on their own friends, Wendy Cortel, age, age 16, and Marvin Washington, age 18. After killing Abraham, the foursome picked up Cortel in Washington and drove them to a public gravel yard, which I'm assuming is like a dump place. Smith and Keene then ordered Cortel and Washington out of the car and took them behind a large dirt pile where they then executed them. Following the slaying of the fifth and sixth victims, the group went after a woman adding air to the tires of her Dodge Shadow. Luckily, she was able to flee when her car was stolen by gunpoint. Soon following the robbery, Dayton Police Sergeant John Huber spotted the Dodge Shadow, and after realizing the plates didn't match because he called in to do a plate check, he immediately called in more units. The capture was pretty uneventful. Smith ran to a nearby home but was soon apprehended. Keen, Matthews, and Taylor were all taken into custody without issue. So the aftermath and where they are now. Laura Taylor, she is currently serving a life sentence at the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville. Heather Matthews is also serving a life sentence at the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville. Demarcus Smith is currently serving a life sentence at Mansfield Correctional Institute. And Marvelous Keene was executed by lethal injection on July 21st, 2009. And that is my very depressing Christmas story. That is absolutely horrible. I know. It's so a little sad. difficult because there's yeah. so different many names. But what really got me was how young these people were. Yeah. Like, they were from age 16. I think the oldest was 20. Just going through. And they try to claim it was because of robbery. But... Mostly they were just having fun killing people. Right. And I mean, was was it really worth that to them, honestly? Like taking no. all those lives, was it worth that? <laughs> Probably not. I'm not sure how much they got from Joseph Wilkerson's house. But other than that, they got a grand total of like $44.50. Right. So I can't imagine that even, you know, 
back then that that was even worth it. <laughs> That's no, so I don't think it was. It was mostly about the thrills and it took them, it doesn't seem like it took them that long, but considering how many people they made were able to kill in three days, the police were just dumbfounded because nothing was tied together. Like they didn't know most, they knew about half the people they went after, but not all of them. Right. They weren't, they're messy and not planned. Because they're children and they shouldn't be killing people. No, what, so, no one should be killing anyone, but no, no. And especially not children. What are the chances also of, you know, you can have one fucked up kid that thinks that's fun and, you know, let's do it. But what are the chances of having more than one? Right. What are the odds that a whole little group comes together and exactly. has like a little murder club? Yeah. I don't know. It's insane, especially because it looks like the main people within this were Laura Taylor and Marvelous Keen. And at that time, they're 16 and 19. I can't imagine. Yeah, and it didn't seem like they had any records. Um, I know one of them, I think it was Heather, had been in jail previous to this. But other than that, no other records were mentioned in just three days. And right. so many people died and injured and the family left behind. So, so this sad. was kind of a downer, but it was interesting. And I don't live too far from Dayton and I'd never heard about it before. So I'm actually only like 30 minutes away, too. So, yeah, it's pretty close between us both. It's crazy. It is. All right, Abby, your turn. Unfortunately, the story I have for you isn't much happier, but like I said, what I'm going to tell you about today is about Aziz Yazdan Panah. Um, so this story takes place in Grapevine, Texas, near Dallas during the Christmas of 2011. Aziz Yazdan Panah, who sometimes went by Bob, was a seemingly normal person. He was a 56-year-old, well-known member of the community and a married father of two, though there was a lot of talk about Aziz and his wife, Fatima, who went by Nazrin to those close to her, um, being financially unstable as Aziz was unemployed for over a decade. In fact, Nazrin's brother, Ali, said he'd been financially supporting the family, and Ali was actually a doctor in London while the family was uh, living here in the United States. So sometime before Christmas, I believe I actually read it was in March of 2011, Aziz and Nazrin became estranged. Nazrin moved out of their large family home into a smaller apartment with their two teenagers after the water and electricity were shut off in the house. That home that they had lived in was eventually foreclosed on by the bank. Um, and Ali found Nazrin the apartment that she moved into with the two kids and said Aziz did have a key, even though he didn't live there. So it was at this apartment where the Yaspin Yes, Din Panah, I'm so sorry, family would have a small Christmas gathering on December 25th, 2011. This gathering included Aziz, Nazrin, their two teenage children, Nazrin's sister, brother-in-law, and niece. And there's actually some text messages that were released to the press sent from Nazrin's niece, Sara. Um, it's unclear how old Sara is. Some reports said 15, some said 18, and I even read one that she was as old as 22. So she was somewhere in between there. She was still, still very young. But anyway, um, these are the texts that she sent. So the first one at roughly 11 a.m. says, quote, so we're here. We just got here, and my uncle is here too, dressed as Santa. Awesome. Then 15 minutes later, around 11.15 a.m., Sara sends another one that says, now he wants to be all fatherly and win father of the year. Now it's unsure what happened during that time, maybe what he was doing to be the quote, win father of the year, but that's when things took a turn for the worst because 911 received a call from inside the apartment at 11.30 a.m. However, there was no one on the other end that they could hear. It was just an open-ended call. 
So the police went to check on it, but they had to force themselves into the apartment. Once inside, they found a very saddening scene. Six family members were shot to death by Aziz while he was dressed up as Santa before he turned the gun on himself. Aziz even tried to stage the shooting by placing one of the handguns in his dead brother-in-law's hand. Now, I initially said no one was on the other end of that 911 call, but after listening to it again with new software, they end up hearing a very raspy voice that says, help me. He said the caller sounded out of breath and the call went dead after about 15 to 20 seconds. Um, they actually think that it was Aziz that made that phone call. Uh, so it didn't take police that long to piece together that Aziz was responsible for it. Uh, besides the financial and marital strain, there was no other motive that really could be found. And I, I know that's enough to break someone, maybe make them crazy, but is that really enough to kill your whole family? That just blew my mind. Um, some reports I read said that Aziz may have showed up uninvited that morning because they had been separated for so long. And some people also said that Aziz was jealous that his wife was moving on and I think she was starting to become successful and make her own money and that made him not very happy. Whatever the reason is, we will never know because it died that morning with Aziz. That is sad. I think, I mean, I'm sure those things didn't help his mental state, but to commit something like that, I think they already have to be kind of mentally unstable. Right. De I agree. Definitely. Um, I think, you know, they said he was unemployed for 10 years and that even his brother-in-law, who was a successful doctor in London, was supporting his family. I feel like that might make someone crazy too, you know, feeling like you can't provide, but your brother-in-law is providing for your whole family. Yeah, that will make him, him feel like emasculated, right? Right. Hmm. Right. And that and how um, Nazrin was starting to become successful after she was starting to work on her own. I believe she right. was a um, cosmetologist. So, you know, she had to go through so many hours of training and she was starting to work. And I think he was just was not happy that he couldn't provide for his family. And yeah. So he so took sad. the easy way out. Mm -hmm. The coward's way out. Yeah. Another asshole. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it seemed like the ages ranged from... It was very hard to find ages on everyone. Um, I kept referring to their kids as teenagers. I kept re reading somewhere that one of them might have has been, I'm sorry, might have been as young as 15 and the oldest being 55 or 56. And that was one of the adults. That's so sad. That sad. Mm -hmm. I guess we should be afraid of Santa too now. <laughs> yeah. Apparently if uh, someone shows up at your house dressed up as Santa unexpected, you better check his sack. <laughs> all right and on that note uh, i hope you guys enjoyed listening to our stories um we'll be adding photos and our sources to our social media posts of course um, if you have any comments or even suggestions for future episodes please reach out to us at caffeine and cats pod at gmail.com we hope you guys have a happy holiday and we will see you guys next week bye bye, bye.